The Free for All Roundtable. Brought to you by Lexus Avon, Canada's newest Lexus dealer. Near Canada's Wonderland in the Maple Auto Mall. Luxury is closer than you think. Round one. On round one, Jerry Agar live in studio. Courtney Betty is a Toronto lawyer with Betty's Law. And Vas Bednar is the executive director of the Master of Public Policy degree in Digital Society at McMaster University. Uh, Olivia Chow is going to be here minutes from now. But in the meantime, we can talk all about her. Uh, she's on TV right now. So Behind her back. She can't hear us. Yeah. <laughs> Go okay. for it, Vaz. Vaz, I'll start with you, actually. The Why? budget. Why? <laughs> I mean, and, and you can take this in any direction because the budget has like 50 angles to it. Yeah, look, I think she's I think there's some real talk in this budget that I really appreciate. And, you know, we've touched on politicians and happy talk and wishful thinking and kind of glossy communications. But I think she's seems like she's being a really strong broker of the realities of our fiscal conversation and also speaking to other orders of government about what we need in the city. And I think it's cool that the 2024 budget was unveiled in Scarborough. Yeah, actually, I was going to observe that, that I thought at last Scarborough is getting the attention it deserves. It's always been the poor cousin. Uh, Courtney Betty, there's an interesting aspect to the budget. And again, you can talk about any angle you want. But I, I love the idea that Olivia Chow created this $8 million fund and city council is free to spend it as they please, in which case they're going to have to get real about a few issues. Well, John, I think, and I agree with Vaz completely, I mean, this budget, I think it's, uh, it's, there's a little bit of artistry here. You know, first of all, they're looking at cuts at City Hall, which they need to do. They looked at all the, all the reserves that they, that they could pull on. And you have elements of, of housing. The one issue that keeps on getting the news that we all got to deal with is the issue of the $12 million for the police. And again, the suggestion that all of a sudden our city is now going to become unsafe for everyone. That's the big concern. Uh, the negotiation with the federal government, I think she's done a really good job on this. Uh, Jerry Angar, are, are we going to have to uh, run interference when Olivia Chow makes her way past your, your workroom this morning? Yeah, there's only one way in and out, unfortunately. Um, I think you made a mistake there, uh, Courtney. Um, it's it's, it's uh, pronounced chicanery. <laughs> is what you meant to say, not artistry. Uh, it, it's ridiculous that they, this, this city council and this mayor have made no attempt to do anything about right-sizing their budget uh, really in any meaningful way. All she did yesterday was come out and blame the situation on COVID and John Tory. Okay, but you're in charge now. So uh, act like a, a real manager. I mean, I, I, God, I hate to have to keep saying this, but I think Deb said it to you. Uh, earlier this morning, if, if they will not save this city hundreds of millions of dollars a year by open source contracting, then they're not serious. But some of those councillors down there count on that cozy little group of unionized contractors to prop up their re-election bids every year. I think that's what's going on down there. Yeah, okay, I'll well, ask Jer her. Jer uh, you know, Jerry, I'm going to come back at you at that. And yeah, certainly the procurement issues. I mean, I helped to work on that in the city many years ago needs to be addressed. But Jerry, we are in a crisis in this city. Yeah, and, then that calls so for something. Many, and so, okay. And so, and so many different levels that we have to look and bite the bullet. Hopefully this is a, you know, the concept, getting it done now. But we can't continue like this. It just, just, we're going downhill. 
And at some point, we got to say, hey, we're going to stop now and try and turn things around. And hopefully this is it. Well, why doesn't that include the open source contract? And Carter says it'll save us $341 million a year. What if they're wrong and it's $200 million? That's significant. <laughs> That's going to be a great question for John this morning. <laughs> 8.05, the mayor will be live in studio. Then the chief of police at 9.05 and the former mayor at 9.20. So we got them all. Uh, recommendations, 63 of them in the Sammy Yatim uh, coroner's inquest or inquiry. Courtney, Betty, there's some interesting recommendations here, including a, a bit of a culture change. The idea that cops should be empowered to call out other cops when they think they're behaving badly. Well, John, you know, I've, I've done inquest before, police shooting, similar situation a few years back. Uh, unfortunately, this is 10 years late. Um, recommendations, that's all they are. This is going to sit on the shelf. The one thing I did notice was the officer had pulled his gun like, um, you know, seven times in the last 15 months. That's a lot uh, based on police training. So already there were some red flags. But I'm not going to put a lot of faith in these recommendations. They're 10 years late. And they usually just sit on the shelf. Yeah, and uh, Jerry Agar, sometimes I'll find myself reading recommendations and thinking, that was in the last report. Yeah, but we're also reacting to something here as uh, terrible and as noticeable as that whole Sammy Yatim incident was. And we're acting like that's the day-to-day -day activity of the Toronto Police, and it isn't. You know, no. like it's let's have a whole new set of recommendations because of one thing. Let's let's say you make a mistake at work and now they just won't shut up about it. And they've got to bring in all kinds of policies and everybody's looking around going, you know, this is not really an actual problem in our in our company. Just one guy screwed up one day. Right. But we could prevent something like this from ever happening again. It's not like it happens every day. But if it happens, somebody gets gets killed. OK, but but this is a part of that aspect where uh, people. People keep saying, oh, the police can't handle mental health. They handle 10 to a dozen mental health issues every single day. And every about two and a half or three years, one of them goes wrong. And then we have these people out there acting like that's the police and that we have to have inquiries and all kinds of changes in policy. When the fact of the matter is the vast majority of the time, the police are getting the job done properly. Right. But Vaz Bednar, you can weigh in on this. I think, you know, this is kind of like when a nuclear plant melts down. You don't say, well, that doesn't happen every day. Well, I see Jerry's point that case studies like this shouldn't characterize every officer in the entire force, but no matter the type of work you're in, the activity of doing something like an after action review, right? Looking at, okay, how did we get there? How did that decision get made? Where did we kind of fall down? What should we do going forward is powerful. And will these recommendations truly stay on a shelf? I'm not sure, but already we see that there have been changes that seem to have been productive, such as more access to stun guns. So I do think that we can find some positive aspects here and I don't know, Jerry, it's it's funny to hear you say when someone screwed up one day, but this person did kill someone. No, he was already dead. And he, wasn't, he wasn't even yeah. charged for killing him. He was charged for shooting him after he died. He was charged for yeah, the well, attempted murder in the, yeah, in the second. And, and just, yeah. just following up on Jerry's point, I, I know for a fact that Metro Police has developed an incredible mental health unit. So they have a special unit that has happened since this incident that works remarkable, that saves a lot of lives. So again, let's give them credit where credit is due. I also wasn't aware we'd had a nuclear meltdown. We haven't, but there have been several. Well, okay, but uh, one was so in Japan. So you're saying we shouldn't investigate no, wait a Chernobyl in order to maybe find yeah. out 
okay. why it happened. Here are the two notable ones. Uh, in Japan, we're unlikely to have a tsunami in Canada. And Chernobyl, which I, I had a nuclear physicist on my show uh, back around that time who said, as far as uh, nuclear physicists are concerned, that was supposedly a power plant, but they're pretty sure there was weapon uh, research going on there. That's why it was so serious. All right. Well, we'll still I don't think, think the Kandu reactor is a, uh, is a nuclear weapon. Uh, listen, Courtney, I know you were interested in weighing in on this, uh, these figures for public sector workers taking six more sick days off than private sector workers. What, uh, what's your view? Well, it's very interesting. The Toronto Star ran an article, I think it was about three months ago, where they identified that every month, one million Canadians are missing at least one day of work. And, and it, you know, the breakdown here is, is there a toxic work environment in the federal government? Because what we're missing here is the whole issue of mental health that's emerging, that's causing a lot of Canadians to miss those those days of work. And so to me, that's the comparison. Now, do we have a more toxic public service than we actually do in the private sector? Okay. It could also be that they're taking a day off to go to the casino. Jerry? Yeah, I, I think we have a permissive. I mean, I mean, Courtney may be onto something. Maybe there, maybe it is a toxic workplace in some offices in government, but it's also very permissive in terms of this sort of thing. And it's appropriate that this research came out today, Groundhog Day, because this is just an ongoing thing. It's no surprise. It's always been the case that the public sector takes more days off than does the, the private. Okay. Vass, I'll let you run with this, but, uh, you know, one quick bit of insight might be that uh, people in the private sector don't have the same level of job security, so they may be afraid to take a day off. There also could be different accounting, right? Different flexibility. Maybe more often in the private sector, people are able to take loo time, right? Or catch up on their work outside of traditional work hours, whereas people in the public service may be more locked into a hyper-traditional workday and not have the ability to uh, take Thursday off, but catch up uh, next week, something like this. So I think also with this newfound-ish flexibility of work, I wonder what that's going to do uh, to the accounting associated with with sick days and who has access to them. There's an oddball aspect to Olivia Chow's budget, and that is we're putting our pigeons on birth control. Uh, Vaz, it's probably a good idea, better than poisoning them. Uh, I think it's a good idea. It is an unusual kind of strange Easter egg that we've had to do this, but I appreciate the ability, the opportunity to learn a little bit more about it. Who knew? Okay. Jerry, a lot of people are saying if we're going to put the pigeons on birth control, why not the raccoons? Yeah. Although while I got kiboshed earlier this morning saying, I'll open the phone lines, who do you want to put on birth control? <laughs> who kiboshed that? Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> That's not advisable, Jerry. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to do that because uh, that could get out of control, okay. I, I got to admit. But um, the, it seems like a, a, a humane way to handle a problem. Like there are people who are afraid to go under power lines because they're, you know, it's going to mess your hair up. Okay, and Courtney Betty, I mean, it's something we can giggle about, but pigeons are pests. Um, they are, and especially if you look in the downtown sector, I, I find right around the Sky Dome, um, for some reason, there's just a flood of pigeons there. So, you know, I, I look at the cost as well when we're trying to balance the budget, but 
you know, if, uh, if it's something that helps, let's do it. Get an umbrella. There seems to be a movement afoot to ease nut bands in schools. And Jerry, you know, uh, it sounds like a great idea to me as long as it's not a health threat. I've always thought that these food bans were sort of a little bit on the panicky side. I, well, I've always been for uh, empowering teachers a little more than we do because uh, we don't empower them at all. And a teacher could easily just, I don't have any kids in my classroom that have a nut uh, allergy, so we're good. And in the various classrooms where you might say, no, we have a child who's actually in danger of death because that's possible from a nut. So in this particular classroom, sorry, kids, you can't have any nuts. Vast, the movement seems to be ease things up. And if there is a kid who has a problem, then everybody's going to have an EpiPen. You know what? It's not the it's not the worst change, but my sister has a fatal peanut allergy, so I, I like get a little bit anxious reading about it. And also, don't forget, it's not just classrooms because we can't forget the very important informal economy of trading snacks at lunch. So that can that can cross classroom boundaries pretty quickly. An informal economy of lunch trading. Yeah, whatever. That. You go to you you walk to school and you look in your lunch bag and you're like, what do I have to trade today? Like it's a big deal. Do you do you have like a Joe Louis? Like do you only have healthy things? It matters. Okay, my mother always packed the dullest lunch in the world. Nobody but... would trade with and John. No one would trade with John. See, he remembers. More so... celery. This is great. Okay, my thanks to Vast Bed and our court. Betty and Jerry Agar. Catch the round table. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.